Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. On Ash Wednesday, we will consider the fragility of life, the inevitability of death, and the delicacy of humanity. Today, we will consider the kindness and loving creativity of God. While I do think we ought to think deeply about forgiving other people, especially because Jesus Christ tells us to do so, we have some preliminary work that we must do. In short, I'm not ready, and we're not ready to talk about forgiving others until we really understand what it means to say that we ourselves are forgiven. Even shorter still, forgiveness is like breathing. You cannot exhale until you have fully inhaled. So what is forgiveness? One approach to forgiveness is what I'll call forgiveness as moral heroism. Forgiveness in this model is letting go of any grudges you have and no longer holding on to any of the resentment that you hold towards others. And it's always teed up in a very kind of moralizing way. If you'd like to be a good Christian, good Christians get out there and just muster up the strength and just start forgiving all their enemies. Okay. Get out there and get them. Go team, go. Second approach I will call forgiveness as defense. Forgiveness is really not about the other person who has harmed you at all. It's actually all about you. Here, forgiveness is about you making sure that they don't live in your head rent-free anymore. And so you forgive them to evict them from your daily headspace, and basically they become dead to you. You take the moral high ground, way above these terrible people who have harmed you, 
And if you're not careful, even the pronouncing of forgiveness upon them in some warped way becomes vengeance. You're so beneath me, I'm just going to forgive you. Now, I'll be honest to you, with you. Both of these approaches, approaches I actually think have value. I do. Believe me, uh, <laughs> there are people for whom I have had to forgive in order to set myself free, okay? So that's Jacob talking. I've done that. Some nice things about it, frankly. But I think both of these approaches share the same downfall theologically. And that is, it seems to still sound a whole lot like us because it starts with us and it really doesn't center God's activity of forgiving us in Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when you read the New Testament, it's hard to escape all of the language in the New Testament about God forgiving us. Okay? And if God has forgiven us, and we take these models of forgiveness as being the only models of forgiveness that is, then it makes the stories about God forgiving us sound a little bizarre. In the first place, if God forgives just like we forgive, God is a moral hero who in God's heart actually holds a ton of grudges against us and resentment. But lucky for us, Jesus worked out a backroom deal with the first person of the Trinity and convinced God that the moral thing to do was to not hold it against us. That doesn't sound like God. In the second place, God plays defense against us. God is so finished with us that God cannot stand to bear us anymore. So instead, God just forgives us to get us out of God's head. Is that really what we think is going on when the New Testament says that God has forgiven us? All I'm saying is, way before we even begin to think about which models we might want to use to try to figure out how to forgive other people, we're going to first have to creatively imagine how it is that God forgave us and then let the pressure of God's forgiveness inform the ways that we might think about being able to forgive others. Do you see the difference? It's not, here's three easy steps to learn how to forgive your enemies. It's, we can't even talk about that until we know what it is that God has done in loving and forgiving us. God's forgiveness is not a blackmail contract. God doesn't say, if you say sorry, then I'll forgive you. If God did, what would God get? A whole bunch of apologies without any change of heart. And if you've ever received one of those, you know that's really not good for a whole lot. God does not say, first, I need you to feel really bad. Then I need you to get on your knees and apologize. And then I will go in the back, find some forgiveness, and hand it to you. But be honest, how many of us think that way? How many of us pray that way? How many of us live that way? No, the heart of the gospel beats to a different drum. We have turned God's good news, the gospel, that is a proclamation, we have transformed it into a really mediocre or bad pitch with a bunch of if-then conditions upon it. God's got a great plan for your life. God is willing to love you. God is willing to not hold some things against you if 
You say the prayer, you get baptized, you, you go down the list. No. The New Testament brings a very different approach to the gospel. It brings a proclamation. Hear the good news. Jesus Christ died for us while we were sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Period. Full stop. Now you get to figure out how to deal with that. You see the difference? Forgiveness is something that God does. God loves us and forgives us and then puts us in the position of response. We respond to God's forgiveness. So God's gospel begins with God's forgiveness. And that eventually leads us to contrition. And finally, at the end of that, as evidence of this journey of forgiveness, it usually results in our confession. One day, the love of God totally overwhelms us, and we are able to see for the first time the ways that we have participated in dehumanization. Dehumanization is the classic Christian understanding of what we call sin. And it's only after we truly see a different way of becoming more truly human that we are able to name the ways in which we are participating in dehumanization. But it always starts with God loving us, God forgiving us. This is why it never works if you've ever wanted to try to demand someone to apologize to you. There's no real meaningful way they can be forced to apologize until they realize just how deeply they have participated in dehumanization. And the only way that that happens is once they are overwhelmed by love. God's forgiveness comes without any form of retribution or vengeance. I mean, I know we have jobs and lives, hobbies and family members, and it's nuts. But like, just, just imagine for a moment what would happen if you just rewired your theological operating system to believe that God's forgiveness comes without any form of retribution or vengeance ever. God's not out to get you. God's not out to get anybody. I mean, it just begins a very deep rewiring. James Allison, who has basically taught me everything I think about this, says, think of it like this. Imagine two equal rivals. One is going to be the victor and the other is going to be defeated, unless maybe both of them just kind of mutually tap each other out. But now imagine two very un- equal rivals, like a child and an adult playing a game together. What a monster the adult would be if they were just playing it all out <laughs> as if they were equals, right? I mean, that would create such a tragic rivalry in the child and it would stunt the child's growth. Normally what adults do is they either choose to let the they either choose to play in a way that teaches the child, I'm going to teach this kid how to win, or I'm going to teach this child how to play. If I teach the child how to win, I'm going to adjust my play to their level accordingly. And over time, I'll adjust with them as they get better. The adult does never, never humiliates the child or dominate them. But the adult also doesn't lose. They always keep winning just out of the grasp of the child to incentivize them to want to win. But on the other hand, if an adult is trying to teach a child just how to play, then yeah, the adult adjusts their level of play to the child's level, 
and increases it over time. But the adult learns how to lose without patronizing the child when they win. You ever done that? The child learns how it feels to win and they see that, oh, it must be okay to lose because I can see this adult showing me that it's fine to lose. That is deep modeling. God is like the adult teaching the human race how to play, not to win. God is not the one who has this insatiable desire for death and vengeance and creating victims. We are. If you have problems with popular level atonement theology, it's probably because they've cast the wrong people in the wrong roles. God isn't the one who wants blood. Humans are. Look at human history. We're the ones who always demand a victim. We're the ones who always demand vengeance. We're the ones who cannot think about justice without incarcerating or killing somebody. Being able to lose, being able to throw the gray, the game is a much greater power than the power of one rival besting another. If I'm able to lose, it means that I don't see us as rivals. I'm just trying to play. If I'm able to lose, it means that I love being with you. And I want to show you how to lose. Not because I like to see you humiliated, but because I want to show you what it means to be so free from needing to win that you can actually learn how to enjoy playing the game. Jesus Christ was so free that he went to the cross and lost to our human need to create violence and victims in order to show us a world where we no longer need to create victims in order to survive. Jesus Christ lost the game of death so that we can live in a way where we don't have to make people die. Jesus throwing the game to death was not done to please the first person of the Trinity or balance the books. Jesus throwing the game away to death was done to get the message through to us. Jesus' death is all three persons of the Trinity getting all up in our face and saying, you are the ones who keep needing someone to die. And we are trying to wean you off of this addiction to death and making victims out of other people. So when Jesus raises from the dead, this is the ultimate proof that God has nothing to do with death. And perhaps that might inspire us to imagine a life with one another where death is no longer needed. God has power because God has nothing to do with death. And so Jesus Christ is able to take a loss to the forces of death so that we might no longer be captivated by death. Now, if that's what forgiveness is, maybe then forgiveness is an ongoing process of creatively learning to live as if we no longer have to play the game of death, even if everyone around us thinks that their whole way of life depends upon death. You can find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.